Hey, Cabin Crew. Welcome to another episode of the Conversation Cabin Podcast. I'm your fearless host, Farah, and I don't know if you can hear that, but I am munching on some Freddy's. If you don't have a Freddy's in your area, then you need to find one or you need to go move somewhere that has one. So Freddy is like this burger joint that has the best burgers for a fast food place that I've ever had. It's actually like real ground beef. It's so good. Not that everything else is fake, but you know what I'm trying to say. And then they have these shoestring fries, which they are the bomb. So as you guys all know, It's like pulling teeth to sit down and and do episodes, but I'm doing a really good job trying to get back into the swing of things. So that's why I'm eating as I'm sitting here trying to record this introduction for tonight's episode. And it's on H.H. Holmes. Now, you might be wondering why we're mixing up the paranormal and true crime today. Let me tell you. H.H. Holmes wasn't your run-of-the-mill bad guy. He was a real con artist, a pro at pulling the wool over people's eyes. And he had a nasty habit of bumping folks off. But what really makes this tale pop is the connection to insurance scams that I slid in this episode. Why did I do that? Because as I was researching H.H. Holmes, I got into the part of his insurance scamming. I just happened to look that up to see what are the statistics of that. Good God, it's crazy. And I go over some of those statistics in this episode. Also, I have a guest joining me on this recording, David from Down the Rabbit Hole, which you all know, he has uh, recently become a co-host with Amanda on her One Nothing podcast. David and I had a great time recording this episode, so I I know you will all enjoy it. Let me say we have some great episodes coming up for you in the next coming weeks. Other than that, I just want to say hello to everyone, all of my friends, fellow podcasters, listeners. If you are a fellow podcaster and you would like to join our trailer swap, please send me an email theconversationcabin at gmail.com. But let's get this episode started. I hope you love it. Deception, Death, and Dollars, the twisted tale of H.H. Holmes, starts now. Loft is a family says something crashed into their backyard puppy that they called 911 saying they saw creatures with the beast around. And tomorrow, a man named Ted Bundy was going to die in Florida's electric chair. They do exist, but they don't exist. They keep telling us they don't exist, but they block every opportunity. If I wanted to kill somebody, I'd take this book and beat you to death with it, and I wouldn't feel a thing. Heard of the Mothman. Do you kill your mother? Four. 
Conversation Cabin Podcast. Let's welcome our guest, David. How are you? And thank you for being here. We've been talking a little bit before we started. David is a courier and he was telling me about a drive that he had taken. It was to a very weird place. It was set back, a little spooky. No one was answering the door. But the person that came out to get the package from David looked like Frankenstein and he even walked like it. And I told David he should have recorded it. Because everybody does stuff like that these days. I should have done that. I should have done it. I lost that opportunity. It's okay. I'm sure there'll be more, especially the fact that you are a courier. I'm sure you meet all walks of life, right? Let me tell you, Farrah, I actually did a a job, Tyler, Texas. Now, Tyler, Texas, at night, I'd never been there in the day, but I was there at night, is a remote-looking area. So I was at farm roads, right? I was dropping off a medical package. It was very late at night. It was like 1030, almost 11 o'clock at night. And I'm looking through the street. It's a farm road. And I see these dogs just out there by themselves. I'm not thinking, "Uh oh, this is not, I don't want to get out of my car. I'm looking for this house, but the houses are far off, but the mailboxes are right there on the street. You see them? So I have my flashlight. I'm searching these mailboxes. I don't see anything. I go down to a cul-de-sac with no houses around the cul-de-sac. Really? So this is like out there. Oh man, let me tell you, there were so many trees. It was like foresty or whatever. So I do the turnaround and I'm looking at the other side of the mailboxes. So I passed the first one by accident. And so I'm backing up. So when I put my car in reverse, I'm looking at the river, like the rearview mirror on my face. And there's a man without a shirt holding a gun with two those two dogs by his side. See, and that's why I asked you yeah. earlier. I don't know how your general thought is on guns. You seem like you would be a responsible gun owner, but I think he should get one. At least a taser. I get a gun. Yeah. This guy changed my whole attitude. You know what I'm saying? It only takes one. I didn't speed off. That was my first thought. Just get out of there. But I thought if I did that, the guy's going to start shooting. And I lowered my window halfway. He walked to the window and I was like waiting for that shot because these guys in the country, they're like, they shoot first and they ask questions later, right? I implore, I said, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to disturb you, sir. I'm looking for so-and-so. Do you happen to know this address? And he said, the first thing he tells me was, I could see your lot in my bedroom. That's exactly what he told me. Oh, wow. Did he have pit bulls? No, one was a German shepherd and the other one was like a mutt. But it was a big dog. I did not want to get out of the car. I don't blame you because usually those type of guys in stereotypical, they have the pit bulls. They spend all their money on dog food. But then they haven't ate themselves in a week. The animals are always first. The dude had no shirt on. I'm pretty sure he didn't have any shoes on. I'm grateful he had pants on. And That is, yeah. But he was actually cool about it. So he was like, I said, I'm so sorry. I was trying to look for the addresses on the mailboxes. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to shine it into your bedroom. I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to find these people. I have some medical like equipment that they need and I'm trying to get it to them. And he actually told me, you know what? This is not the only farm road with that number. If you go here and here, you can find the other two farm roads. And he was actually right. So he was cool about it. And I felt, okay, I made the rotation talking to him. That's nice. He helped you out so you wouldn't be lost. We say Americans, doesn't matter what side you're on. Unity is very important, I believe. U-N-I-T-Y. Or I could have lowered the... And what would you say? (laughs) I wouldn't say nothing. I'd be six feet under. Our next show, you'd be like, damn it. Just damn it. Because that would... I'm getting a gun. Anyone shows a gun, 
down. Exactly. But hey, this actually brings me to the first question I have to ask you about tonight's episode. What are your thoughts on serial killers? I am fascinated with the mindset create serial killers. I wanted to be a, like a therapist. I wanted to work with the psychological mind and learn what causes people to do these things. Why do they do these things? What actually, when I, when I was a kid, I wanted to work for the FBI and I wanted to oh. work the behavioral unit because that's the, those are the people that are actually figuring out why serial killers do. I was fascinated with those guys and I didn't get that opportunity. However, it has fascinated me throughout my life. Yeah, I'm anything serial killer. I don't believe we should raise them up like we used to in, in the old days when they would talk about them constantly. Now they don't do that anymore, which I think is better. Yeah, of course. Them. We want that they're wrong in what they do. This is not the right thing to do. If we can figure out how to stop this, that would be ideal. That's. Good. I like how you put that in the beginning. You have people that are fascinated. They want to know what creates that criminal psycho mind. And then you have people that are the sickos and are fascinated by the crime. Serial killers study another serial killer. They look in the news and they see how did they get caught? How did they do their crimes? It's almost like a competition of who can kill more. That's not why they're killing, but it, it does play into it a little bit. There's something about the infamy of creating these kind of crimes that they want to be the best. Right. Like anything else, you want to be the best, whatever you're doing, if you're not trying to be the best, then I don't know who the hell you are. They want to be the best at killing the, the most people they can possibly kill and get away with. Right. When Columbine happened, I think they were the first school shooting that ever happened. And then the shootings that followed after that, a lot of them mentioned Columbine. That's where they had first seen it, which gave them the idea. And they wanted to be, quote, famous, just like those shooters from Columbine. I lived in Florida when that Parkland shooter had killed 17 kids. And as every mass shooting is, it was an absolute tragedy. And of course, I can't say 100% that this is true. But it's almost like these kids have it in the back of their mind how many people they want to kill and to make sure it's always higher. This is fascinating to me how people are trying to change the actions of these people. You just mentioned Columbine. It's Eric and Dylan. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Dylan sounds familiar, not the Eric, but I'm sure you're right. It was Eric Klebold and Dylan, I forget his last name, but I remember the names. And if I'm wrong, please let us know. That if I'm wrong about that, I might be wrong. But let me ask you now, the Uvalde shooter in Texas. Yeah. Remember that one? Do you know his name? I don't either. I don't know the name of that guy. Do you remember the, I think it was a, a female shooter who was transitioning and went into, oh. I don't remember that person's name either. They're not showcasing the names. And I'm glad for that because we don't want to glorify these people. We don't want to give them any more attention because they don't deserve it. Now, I do know the Parkland shooter's name, which is Nicholas, because it was all over Florida. It was such a huge amount of children, 17 futures taken away. And then when I was watching the trial, which they televised, I was listening to the victim impact statements of all those parents. That was so crushing, but they were going after the defense team. With this kid, there was one point in the trial that the lawyers did something very unprofessional. One of Nicholas' defense attorneys had put her middle finger 
on her cheek like she was rubbing her cheek, but with her middle finger. And they were smirking about it. One of the fathers got up on that podium and said, pretty much you guys are pieces of shit. He had every right to say that. They were just sitting there talking with this kid and they were laughing and joking with him. And I just thought it was very weird as human beings themselves to treat this person that just ended 17 lives like he's a pal. But yes, when you're saying that the media isn't really giving them a lot of airtime, besides the trials that we see, they're not being as glorified as they once were. Anyway, let's stop giving him airtime and move on to the story that we're going to cover. And I'm sure that you've heard his name, H. Holmes. I do know he's actually on my word search book. It's called Haunted America. And I have the whole page out with his head basically in the background looking for the words. on. It's really great. And yeah, he, yeah, I know a little bit. Of- All right. So David, when you hear his name, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Murder Hotel, there's a rumor that he might actually be Jack the Ripper, that he moved over from England, but that's circumstantial. He married and he was trying to be a, a good guy, but he went off kilter and started building this hotel where he had secret rooms. And he would, people who would come over, he would capture them and take them to these rooms and basically murder them, dispose of their bodies down below. This guy was never good. H. Holmes, born Herman Webster Mudgett, is one of America's most notorious serial killers. He was active in the late 1800s and built the infamous Murder Castle in Chicago, Illinois. It is estimated that he killed between 27 and 200 people during his reign of terror. His trial and execution were highly publicized events, and even today, the story continues to fascinate people around the world. Even more mysterious are the connections between Holmes and Jack the Ripper. Could they be one and the same? Let's talk about Holmes' early days. He was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire on May 16, 1861. He came from a pretty messed up family. His dad was an alcoholic who was abusive to everyone. Despite the tough home life, Holmes was a super smart student, but unfortunately he was a target for bullies who decided to play a mean trick on him. They made him stand face to face with a real skeleton and put its hands on his face. Pretty creepy, right? Big group from way back when to even now, the odd fellows, the Freemasons, that's what they do. When you get initiated, they bring a real skeleton in a coffin. They pick it up and you have to stare at it to face your own immortality. They did this to this little boy. I don't know why they did that, but instead of being scared, Holmes found it fascinating and it Mm. actually sparked his obsession with death. He started dissecting animals as a hobby. Do you think that dissecting animals is a precursor to becoming a serial killer. When I would study on this, it is a precursor to people who are fascinated with death and they're fascinated with killing. 
That's the mm -hmm. thing they do is they actually capture small animals and they'll start killing them, dissecting them. That's a very bizarre way of an introduction into that world. You know? They have no heart. They're not empathetic at all. Serial killers that harmed animals when they were children, including Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, yep. Gary Ridgway, John Wayne Gacy, the Boston Strangler. And it's held popular belief that children who are abusive toward animals are serial killers in the making. The behavioral science unit in the FBI, if you were to look into their files, there are a lot more serial killers that would do this. And that also lends to the fact that they were abused as children. There were their parents would abuse and their mothers. If there's a male, for sure, it was the, like the, the female that would abuse them. Withhold love. That's a big thing. When you're not loved, you're going to go out and kill something small, right? Because you, right. you don't know what that means. What it is to love something. So you're going to dissect these little animals. And So if you know someone, if you're a child out there and you see someone killing animals, that's a sign. You need to let somebody know. You need to report it. I remember watching the Jeffrey Dahmer documentary where his dad saw that he was into taxidermy, but he just wasn't into taxidermy. He took it to a whole different level. He had skulls in his gym bag. He had like altars. You have to really be prepared to see signs when your child is small and going through puberty, especially these days. You feel bad for the parents because I don't know what it's like to have a child that's going through something like that. And these parents almost sheltered them. Oh, there's something wrong with you. Look how the doctors are so easy to shove in medication down a kid's throat. Every woman that walks in, it's, oh, you're depressed. Every kid that walks in, oh, you got ADD, you got ADHD. What do you feel about that? On some levels, it's warranted on some people, for sure. If you have someone who is psychotic in a sense that is going to do some damage to somebody, yeah, they probably need meds. Not everyone needs meds, not every single person. Let's say if we're talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. His dad saw that as a positive. He thought taxidermy was a good thing, so he encouraged that in Jeffrey. He encouraged it because he thought... Maybe that's like a trade that Jeffrey can do later. They would go together and they would pick up roadkill and bring it back and work on it together. He coveted his son's sickness without even knowing. You hear so many parents, if I, if I would have known, or were there signs? There are signs. It's just you're coveting it. He thought it was a good thing. It was a mistake. It seems like it, yeah. But yeah. he thought, this is something that I can encourage him to do. I can help him with it. We can do it together. That's the way he looked at it. And unfortunately, Jeffrey had all the signs of a potential serial killer. Very sad. Yes. That's what happened. And a lot of young men lost their lives as a result of this and were eaten by this man. That so you always watch when anything Jeffrey Dahmer, if you type that up on YouTube, the thing mm -hmm. that always comes up the most is that one black lady that it was her brother and she like went after and was yeah. screaming at Jeffrey. I see it in my head right now. The lady that lived next to him and called the cops several times warning them that he was doing something wrong. He could hear screams and whatnot. He could hear all that stuff. And, and the they, smell. Yeah, and they, he's fine. 
You're just complaining. The worst part is when that young Asian kid ran out when his underwear running down the street and then the cops bring him back and Jeffrey's, oh, this is my boyfriend and we just had a fight. Like you just served him up on a platter, literally. Now, once he finished high school, Holmes got married to a woman named Clara and they had a son together, which that's something I did not know that H.H. Holmes had children, but things didn't work out and he ended up leaving them behind. He then went to the University of Vermont for a bit, but he dropped out after a year. And then he went to the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated two years later. While he was there, he did some seriously messed up stuff. He stole cadavers from the lab, mangled them up, and then claimed they died in accidents so he could cash in on the insurance money. Yeah, I do know that. He would do that a lot. And he made a lot of money. How do you think he got that murder castle? Exactly. Yeah. When he was married and he had that child, he was actually trying to do right by this family. They would argue a lot, right? And he wasn't a good guy. Like you said, he was never a good guy. And he left. He left them behind. But from what I understand, there was some abuse that went down. I think he liked power. He didn't like someone yelling at him. Yes, yes. No, you're a woman. Stay in your lane. Especially at that time. The 1800s. And what always breaks my heart, and this is a little just side note. When I watch paranormal investigations that take place, in an old poor farm or an old asylum. Back in the day, if a wife bitched too much, the husband could drop her off and leave her there. And she was with like mental patients. If a man was an alcoholic back in the day, same thing. The wife could drop him off. Back in this time, that whole women's rights was a nil. It was a nil. Women weren't allowed to talk back. They weren't allowed to fight. So now I'm going to touch on a little bit about life insurance fraud and how widespread it is. Because just as we spoke about earlier, H. Holmes was a man that committed a lot of fraud. Life insurance fraud costing companies $74.7 billion each year. Between 10 and 20% of insurance claims are fraudulent. Policyholders commit $35.1 billion. I never understood why you would kill the love of your life for money, like the insurance fraud, because there are so many different cases where the insurance money that they got was like $10,000. It was nothing. Murder is bad, of course, no matter which way you look at it. But over something like money, it just blows my mind. So I looked up what some of the top cases of that type of crime. So Mm -hmm. there is this one guy, there's five of them. So one of them, Isaac, I don't know how to say this last name. Agugu, A-G-U-I-G-U-I. Agugu. I don't know how to say that. Sound good. Okay, you can see there's four military guys, and that's them in their prison jumpsuits. And this is Deidre. So listen to this quick story. Back in 2014, this 22-year-old guy named Isaac got in some serious trouble. 
he was convicted by a military judge for murdering his pregnant wife, Sergeant Deirdre. He managed to get $400,000 from life insurance and another $100,000 from the army to cover the funeral expenses. And you won't believe what he was planning to do with that money. Take a wild guess. You're not going to believe it. He was going to buy a murder hole. Nope. He wanted to start a group. It was, get ready for it, called Fear. Forever Enduring Always Ready. They had crazy plans like bombing a public park, poisoning apple crops in Washington State, and even trying to take out the president. You cannot make this shit up. And here's the other thing. He was already serving a life sentence for killing two other people who found out about the plans and he murdered them so they couldn't be witnessed. Is that crazy or what? Absolutely crazy. Absolutely. I wanted to look into this because H.H. Holmes did a lot of insurance fraud. Not only this, we'll get into a little bit more, but another one, Julia Murfield is her name. And let me pull her up. Look at that little smirk as she sits in her trial. So this is Julia. She's a 21-year-old girl from Muskegon, Michigan. And she's in prison right now, serving a 5 to 20-year sentence. Why? Back in 2013, she actually tried to hire someone to kill her husband. All because she wanted to get her hands on his $400,000 life insurance. So she goes up to one of her coworkers and asks them to help out with the whole murder plan. But guess what? The coworker wasn't having it. They immediately called the cops and set up a meeting between her and a quote, supposed hitman. But guess who the hitman was? An undercover detective. So the detective recorded two conversations where she straight up explained all the details of how where and when she wanted her husband to be killed. Lucky for everyone involved, the police were able to step in before anything terrible happened. But could you imagine them playing that in court and the husband sitting there, but her family, her friends, and them just going, oh my God. I can't, I cannot imagine that. That's, uh, yeah, she's smirking there. She's not that bright, obviously. You pick your coworker that you don't know. It's not your best friend, it's your coworker. You can't trust people that easy. Oh, she was dumb. I'm glad she was. One of America's worst criminals. There's many of those. All right. So we have Molly and Clayton Daniels. This story is just hilarious. So back in 2004, Molly came up with this wild idea to fake her husband's death. She wanted to cash in on his $110,000 life insurance policy. So she cooked up this plan. Molly convinced her husband, Clayton, to dig up a body from a local graveyard, dress it up in his clothes, and then make it look like he died in a car accident. The whole thing didn't go as planned. The cops got suspicious right away when they noticed some weird things about the accident. There were no skid marks leading up to the crash site. And the fire started in the front seat, not the engine. This is what I mean, dumb criminals. They did some DNA testing, like they wouldn't do that on the burned body in the front seat. And it turns out to not be Clayton. It also turns out that Molly faked documents to give her husband a new identity. She went all out with a phony birth certificate, 
driver's license, the work. She even introduced her kids to this fake boyfriend named Jake Gregg. But guess who Jake Gregg was? Her husband. Right, with dyed black hair. And did she even fool her kids? Come on, man. Some people, that's, that's, that's dumb. dumb. I was just going to say, knowing that the fire didn't start at the engine was the least of their problems. Once they did the DNA test, it was over. And this is 2004, you said, right? If a car is just sitting there, not crunched up in the front, which yeah. means there's no skip. What were you thinking? Like, that just doesn't even, you're, oh my God. What's funny to me is they probably thought this was a brilliant idea. Oh, it's going to work. Oh, yep. We're going to go to Greece and we're going to get oh a new God. house and a new car to be a fly on the wall in conversation. <laughs> and then great. we have two more. Now, this next one is heartbreaking, and I'm sure you probably heard of this one. So the suspect is Pastor Kevin Pushia. In 2010, former pastor and founder of a small Baltimore, Maryland church, Kevin Pushia, was convicted of the murder of Lemuel Wallace, a blind, developmentally disabled man associated at Pushia's nonprofit organization. He confessed to having hired two men to pick him up from his group home and shoot him in a nearby park bathroom. He was found out when the insurance company noticed that he was listed on this poor man's $400,000 life insurance plan, but he wasn't a relative. He had apparently posed as Wallace's brother to get his name added to the policy, thereby committing life insurance fraud. The two mm -hmm. men accused of committing the act were eventually acquitted and Pushia is now serving a life sentence for ordering the murder with another 45 years added on for the additional charge of life insurance fraud. Good for that. The other two were acquitted? Didn't they commit the murder? That's very weird. How do you commit a murder and get acquitted? Immunity. I hope he's haunted in his cell every day of his life. A pastor, a priest, whatever, they're men of God, but they're also human and they're fallible. Take an extra oath. It's not going to make a bit of difference. That guy would have done the same thing. You know what I'm saying? It's just, uh, it's a sad thing. You're going to get people who take it serious and are good people and are helping people. And then you're going to get guys like this guy who is not taking it serious. He's taking advantage of the name, right? The pastor name, and he's doing whatever the hell he wants. That is the most horrible thing I've ever heard. Murdering a person like that, it's, that's just horrible. Putting yourself in his policy? Come on. Wow, man of God. That's a, right. Yeah. That's what struck me about it is that mm -hmm. of all people, and I get it, I agree with you. Of course, they're human, but yeah. you as a pastor, take that extra oath to help people like criminals to hey, come to the Lord and make your life right. better. And it wow. just wow. It it just made me upset. That but, is horrible. And then for our last one, it is about Michael Malloy. So probably one of the most infamous and bizarre cases is that of the murder after five attempts, keep that in mind, of Michael Malloy in 1933. After Malloy, a homeless man and severe alcoholic had upset the owner of his favorite speakeasy by frequently passing out face down on the bar, the owner and five friends hatched a little scheme. Their plan was to take out a life insurance policy on Malloy and then get him to drink himself to death 
so they could split the payout. But when he failed to die from alcohol poisoning, they realized they'd have to change their approach. They poisoned him with antifreeze, turpentine, rotten food, rat poison, and he just kept on waking up. One night, they waited for him to pass out at the bar, dragged him outside in sub-zero temperatures, poured freezing water on his bare chest, and dumped him in the snow, thinking he would surely freeze to death. Nope. Malloy just strolled into the bar the next day, thinking he had simply gotten too drunk the night before and passed out in the park. Wow. The five conspirators, dubbed the Murder Trust by the New York media, eventually did kill Malloy via carbon monoxide poisoning. All five were soon caught and sent to prison where four of them were executed in the electric chair. That one I thought was the most bizarre. You know who that reminds me of from history? Rasputin. So Rasputin was the czar's medicine man. He He saved his son, who was a hemophiliac. Somehow he saved him, right? Which is in itself bizarre to begin with. The czar had to go to war and the noblemen of, in Russia decided that Rasputin needed to go because he was having harems. He was sleeping with noblemen's wives. He was doing whatever he wanted. So they decided he must be killed. So they poisoned him and it didn't take. He came right back. No problem. So they poisoned him again with something else. It didn't take. He came back. So they poisoned him again and again. And each time he was fine. He was not being poisoned. Somehow he survived it. So they finally thought, damn, what do we do now? They shot him, right? He was fine. He came back from it. No problem. Finally, they shot him several times, shot him in the head, put him in a frozen river, figuring that he was going to finally die. The man almost came out of that, struggling to breathe, but it finally he finally succumbed to it. wonder what made him so strong like that. That's bizarre. A man of God, he perceived to be a man of God. Something was very bizarre about this guy. He was, yeah, very strong-willed. Something was up with this man. But he finally, apparently he finally died. And they got rid of him eventually. But back to Holmes. After that, Holmes just went on a wild ride. He left his family and started scamming people left and right. He even ended up in Forks, New York, where he was seen with a little boy who later went missing. Holmes tried to play it off and said the boy went back home to Massachusetts, then left town so the police didn't bother investigating. Pretty sketchy. Eventually, Holmes got a job at Norris Down State Hospital in Philadelphia, but he only lasted a few days before quitting. While he was still married to Clara, he married another woman and also had another child. He attempted to divorce his first life, Clara, which failed and then married yet another woman. He began working at a local drugstore, but this is where things get twisted. A boy died after taking medication from that store. Of course, Holmes denied any involvement. He just skipped town. That's the way Holmes' behavior was. He'd do something and skips. Because back in the day, it's the 1800. They didn't have investigation ways where you can pull up credit card statements or receipts to find out or telephone calls, cell phone calls to like track towers. He was gone. And then that was the end of the investigation. I find him. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Now, okay. The drugstore owner, Elizabeth, lost her husband and she decided to sell her drugstore Two homes. And here's where things get mysterious. She basically disappeared 
off the face of the earth. Whenever anyone Holmes knew about her, he would just say she moved to California to be with her family. Holmes took that opportunity and bought an empty lot right across from the drugstore. He had big plans and this is where he built that whole hotel, which the locals affectionately called the castle. This was no ordinary hotel. It was like a crazy maze with rooms leading to brick wall hallways at weird angles and stairways that led to nowhere. And some of the doors could only be opened from the outside. Holmes was a pretty smart guy. He want anyone to figure out how strange his hotel was. So what did he do? He hired and fired different construction workers to throw everyone off. There were also rumors that he was killing some of the contractors. In the late 1800s, there was a right. checking up or exactly. contractors who didn't have families or, you know what I'm saying? They would disappear mm -hmm. and no one would go looking for them. They would just be gone. And that's it. Exactly. Holmes ended up meeting a guy named Benjamin Peitzel, who had a criminal past and was a carpenter, Holmes saw potential in him and turned him into his right-hand man. A little bit about the murder castle and the people that died there. Holmes had this sick habit of luring mostly women to the place and then brutally killing them. One of his victims named Julia Smythe, a mistress of his, who is actually married to a guy named Ned Connor. Connor found out about Smith's affair with Holmes. He got the heck out of there and left her and their daughter Pearl. So now in 1891, Smythe drops a bomb on Holmes. She tells him she's pregnant with his baby and they get married. Holmes agrees to marry her on one condition. And guess what the condition is? Get rid of the baby. Yep, you're right. Performing an abortion. And back in the day, abortions weren't done very well. Serrated blades and all sorts of craziness. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like you'll become sterile or you'll bleed to death. But Smythe, she agrees. But instead of just that, Holmes goes completely overboard. He overdoses her with chloroform and then poisons and butchers her daughter, Pearl. When people ask Holmes what happened to them, he just said they went to attend a family wedding in Iowa. Holmes hires a guy named Charles Chappelle to articulate Smythe's skeleton he shows Chappelle the body and sends him home with the arms and legs to work on. But Holmes ends up not paying him what he's owed and Chappelle refuses to give him the skeleton and keeps it for his own. But the madness doesn't stop there. Holmes meets a railroad heiress named Minnie Williams while he was on a business trip in Boston. They started dating and get into a full-blown romantic relationship. He eventually goes back to Chicago, but he doesn't stop sending all of these love letters to Minnie Williams. In February 1893, Williams moves to Chicago and starts working at Holmes's hotel as his personal stenographer. Holmes convinces her to transfer the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a guy named Alexander Bond. And guess who Alexander Bond was? H. Holmes. See how manipulative he was? Williams transfers the deed and later signs it over to a guy named Benton Lyman, who's actually another alias used by Holmes's right-hand man. Williams invites her sister Annie to Chicago, and once she arrives, she and Holmes become close. One day... Holmes sends Annie into his vault to get a file for him. And as she looked for the file, 
he locks her inside and then he goes ahead and poisons her sister. After the World's mm -hmm. Fair, Holmes decides to leave Chicago and head to Fort Worth. He plans to build another castle there, but he ends up changing his mind and just ditches the whole project. In July 1894, Holmes gets arrested and thrown in jail for the first time, but not for his crimes at the castle, actually for a horse swindle in St. Louis. While in jail, he meets famous outlaw guy named Marion Hedgepeth, also known as the debonair killer. Holmes cooks up this plan to scam an insurance company out of $10,000 by faking his own death. He promises Hedgepath a nice commission if he helps him find a trustworthy lawyer. Eventually, Holmes gets hooked up with an attorney named Jephthah Howe, who thinks the whole plan is brilliant. But guess what? The insurance company gets suspicious and refuses to pay up, so Holmes' little scheme falls apart. Now, Holmes decided not to push the claim and instead came up with this similar plan with his right-hand man, Benjamin. They mm -hmm. had this whole idea where Benjamin would pretend to be this inventor named B.F. Perry, but things took a dark turn. Instead of finding a fake dead body for the role, Holmes knocked Benjamin out with chloroform and burned him alive. This is where I can see his kill count being in the hundreds. I agree with you. Yeah, I think so. he probably killed many of those construction workers, the lower class hands of the owner, like the yeah. labor guys. That way they wouldn't be able to tell what- exactly. he Right, who would believe him? Who right. would believe him? After that, he played mind games with Benjamin's wife and somehow convinced her to let him take care of their three kids, Alice, Nellie, and Howard. As Holmes roamed around the Northern US and Canada, he forced Alice and Nellie into a trunk and killed them with gas. He burned their bodies in a basement of a rental home. Later on, a detective named Frank Geyer found the bodies and noticed something strange. Nellie's feet were missing. Turns out she had a club foot and Holmes removed it so no one could identify her. Geyer tracked Holmes to Indianapolis, where Holmes went to a pharmacy to buy drugs to kill the last kid, which was Howard. After killing him, Holmes mutilated his body, removed his teeth, and stuffed the body in a chimney. In 1894, this guy named Hedgepeth spilled the beans to police because Holmes didn't pay him for helping him with his schemes, remember? Holmes yeah. got arrested in Boston for stealing horses. When the police interviewed some of the people who worked at the castle, they found out some stuff. One of the caretakers said he wasn't allowed to clean the second floor, which made him think something fishy was going on up there. They discovered the secret rooms, the torture chambers. In the basement, they found human bones and they couldn't imagine what Holmes was up to down there. While they were searching, a plumber accidentally caused an explosion by lighting a match near an oil tank hidden behind the wall. A lot of guys got hurt. No one died. And in October 1895, Holmes went on trial for Benjamin's murder. They found him guilty and sentenced him to death. At first, he claimed he was innocent, don't they all? Blamed the devil for his crimes. Holmes denied each in all of these killings, the denials did no good, nor did his appeals to escape 
On the morning of May 7, 1896, after the last appeal had been refused, Holmes, his face pale, but his stride sturdy and his spirits high, walked up the gallows in the moyamentered assistant sheriff prepared to put the noose around Holmes' neck. He objected and said, Don't be in a hurry, Alex. Richard stopped. And then Holmes turned to the 60 spectators. Gentlemen, he said, I have very few words to say. In fact, I would make no remarks at this time, but for my feeling that in not speaking, I would appear to be quiescent in my execution. I wish to say only that the extent of my wrongdoing and taking human life is the killing of two women. They, having died by my hands, as the result of criminal operations. He didn't name them, though. He continued, I also wish to state here, so there could be no chance of misunderstanding, hereafter that I am not guilty of taking the lives of any of the Pythe children or Benjamin, their father, of whose death I was convicted and for which I am to hang today. He stopped talking. Richard sloped the noose over his head, tightened it, and asked, Are you ready, Holmes? In a clear voice, Holmes replied, Yes, don't bungle. Goodbye. Sheriff Samuel Clement sprung the trap. Now here's the funny thing. Karma's a bitch. During the hanging, Holmes' neck didn't snap, so he sat there and strangled for over 15 minutes before they finally declared him dead. Too short. Too short. Too 25 sh- hours would have been a little better. Yeah. And many criminals that have murdered someone, their first thing is to say, the devil made me do it. Or I heard voices. Why do you feel that's the first things that they point to why they murdered someone? It's really simple. If you think about the, it's the, I'm trying to remember the name. It's failing me, but do you remember the haunted house in New York? Oh my God. Why is it? Anyway, the person who murdered his family in that house, it was a famous house, Amityville. They used the devil as the defense in that court case. And so what they were trying to push for was like a, an insanity defense. So a lot of these people will throw that out there because they know it's, it's a buzzword. It, it'll get them that insanity type of thing. If you think I'm crazy, then I should be acquitted or I should go to the nun house instead. I think that's why they use it. I think Holmes used it because he was a master manipulator. He, he was getting away with everything else. He was getting away with everything. So why not a horse thing? It's going to work. These people don't check this stuff. It works. So why not do that? He got caught, right? He just was a master manipulator. He would do and say whatever he had to get away with it. And most times it worked. 95% of the time he got away with it. Remember, Ed and Lorraine Warren were hired to be on the defense side for that Arnie guy. Or the devil made me do it movie and yes. they tried that was the first time ever that they used the devil made me do it i was possessed i didn't know what i was doing it wasn't me i mean come on how yeah. are you supposed to prove that exactly that's the problem right i think they made a mistake by doing that it didn't help the guy it made it worse i just think holmes had a career starting off really early of getting away with it with it and doing and saying anything he could and like you said he had convinced a lot of people he was good 
I know some people like that in my life that are pretty good manipulators that are world renowned like this guy could make you believe anything. But I'm telling you, this man, and I don't use this word often because I don't really attribute good and evil to people. It's, I think we're all, we all have a little bit of good and evil in us. This guy had very little good in him. He had more evil than good. The things he did, the horror, this guy could have easily been the Ripper, Jack the Ripper. This is a side-by-side of Jack the Ripper on the left and Holmes on the right. This is Holmes' confession. He confessed to 27 murders. Look at that writing. I should have had it. And look at that writing. Yes, very similar. Very similar. I was looking close up at it, and it looks like the T's are done the same. Have you ever watched Expedition Unknown with Josh Gates? That's Uh, on Discovery Channel, Travel Channel? I don't think so. Josh Gates hired a forensic team and then put these two letters side by side and did like a comparison. And it was almost 95% a match. When Ripper wasn't in London, Holmes was in London. Think of this, Farrah. Think of this. If he, so the Jack the Ripper murders happened first. So he, if you're thinking if this is Holmes, let's think about the circumstances that he was under. He was doing it in the street, right? So he was doing it in the street. He actually had murdered one of them in their home, their little home, and he was mutilating these people. Now, if you're the Ripper and you're thinking, I want more, I want to be able to do this without being bothered, without someone coming out of the street. And on a bigger scale. On a bigger scale. Why not build a hotel with special rooms where I can do whatever I want and no one's going to disturb me. I can go into the organs. I can separate them. And no one's going to know because they, once I'm done, I dispose of everything. So that you have the ability to create the same kind of crime without the eyes of the outside or anyone finding them because you're the one who disposes of the body once you're done. You don't have to worry about that stuff. Right. Jack Ritter was leaving them there because he had to run because people were showing up while he was working. Then he actually had the one where he took into her home and murdered her there. He had the ability to have a closed door, closed windows, and he could do what he wanted. And he did, right? But right. he left it there because he couldn't take it with him. What and then also, he liked making aliens. Yeah. He's that manipulative. He seems cocky. In London. He was very cocky in the UK, in White mm-hmm. Shadow's murders. He Did he do anything like that over here? I don't think he wrote to the police. So that could be one thing that you're saying is, okay, so that's different. Why would you need to? Because you don't, you're not leaving the bodies outside for anyone to see. Karma is such a bitch. I didn't know that he did not die right off the bat. So that makes me happy that he suffered. What happened to his kids, I wonder. Thank you so much for joining me again, David. I really appreciate it. And I hope that you like this episode with me. You have all the information. We can talk about it. I like it a lot. I'm glad to see you. And that's a wrap on the newest episode of the Conversation Cabin podcast. I appreciate all of you joining me. We have some amazing shows coming up for you. So until next time, Cabin Crew, explore your strength.